Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and today's show is an important one. Not only is it important to us as citizens, it's important as humans and important in the manner of our respect, treatment, and relations with one another. You know, I, I rarely say this, but this show, this subject is important to me, and I strongly support this constitutional process. By way of background, in 1923, the Equal Rights Amendment debuted in Congress, introduced only three years after the Women's Suffrage Amendment. It was ratified at that point, and the ERA aimed to eradicate laws that discriminated against women. In the crosshairs of this proposed amendment to the Constitution were, for instance, state laws that closed jury service to women, prevented married women from establishing residence separate from their husbands, granted fathers sole custody of children, or barred women from jobs requiring night work. Proponents of the Equal Rights Amendment claimed in 1923 and continue to insist that it will help American women achieve full equality with men. But the turbulent history of the ERA reveals deep skepticism about the claim. Between 1923 and the late 1960s, most progressive feminists opposed the ERA. Not until the early 1970s did most feminists rally around it. Having at that point gained widespread support from progressives, it passed through Congress with substantial bipartisan support. Most observers agreed that the ERA would sail to ratification. Instead, a conservative opposition swelled and stop the amendment in its tracks. Our guest today is Dr. Robin Muncie. Dr. Robin Muncie is Affiliate Professor American Studies at the University of Maryland. Professor Muncie's scholarship and teaching focus on women, social policy, progressive social movements, and labor-slash-working-class history in 20th century America. The ERA survives today as a cherished goal of many feminists, including our guest today, Dr. Robin Muncie, though some remain cool and conservative opposition continues. But the ERA in recent polling enjoys 94% public support, and we are nearing full ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment. The ERA will help prevent rollbacks of the gains that have been made for women's equality in new laws and policies. Join me and historian Raman Muncy as we discuss the wild twists and turns in the story of the Equal Rights Amendment from 1923 to present. 2022. And you can find Dr. Robin Muncie at Smithsonian Associates coming up soon with more details available at our website and Smithsonian Associates websites. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, Smithsonian Associate, Dr. Robin Muncie. Dr. Robin Muncie, welcome back to the program. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you, Paul. It's good to talk to you again. Hope you, your family, all of your uh, world is going well following our down and uh, all the issues that we all face with COVID. But my best to you and yours. Oh, same to you. Thank you very much. Well, it's good to talk again. And I think we are talking about something that I am just very interested in. I think this is a a powerful subject. I think the timing is right for this, too, Dr. Muncie. We're going to be talking about the Equal Rights Amendment today and your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. But why don't we start there? Why don't you tell us just briefly about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation? 
Oh, you bet. My Smithsonian talk will analyze the shifting meanings of the Equal Rights Amendment since it was first introduced into Congress in 1923. So we are gonna whiz through a century of history. Uh, the Equal Rights Amendment was penned and introduced into Congress only three years after the Women's Suffrage Amendment was ratified. And a handful of former suffragists believed that the next step toward gender equality was to eradicate state laws in particular that discriminated against women. But then, to the surprise of virtually everyone, an enormous, powerful, effective, conservative opposition to the ERA emerged. And that's led by women like um, Phyllis Schlafly, who argued that the ERA was a threat to the family and to the privileges that American women had in her view. And the opposition was so effective by the late 1970s and the early 1980s that the ERA failed to meet that 1982 deadline. It fell short by three states. And so it looked like the ERA was a dead letter in 1982. But it turned out not to be a dead letter in sort of two different ways. One of the ways was that by the late 90s, um, a lot of theorists claimed that, and historians, claimed that a de facto ERA had actually been achieved through legislation like the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Pregnancy Discrimination Act of 1978. Through that kind of legislation and a whole series of Supreme Court decisions, a de facto ERA had been achieved. So what they argued was that by the end of the 20th century, actually most of what the Equal Rights Amendment would have given women had been achieved through other means. But at the same time, in the 1990s, a kind of new movement for the amendment itself emerged, and that has gained all kinds of new visibility, as you well know, in the last four or five years. So that um, right now, three more states have ratified the uh, Equal Rights Amendment so that it now has the 38 states necessary to uh, meet the standard of three quarters of the states ratifying to produce an amendment to the, to the Constitution. And the House of Representatives has, has actually passed a law that rescinds the um, 1982 deadline. So right now, the ERA is once again a very live issue. And so my Smithsonian talk is going to outline and explain those kind of wild twists and turns in the story of the Equal Rights Amendment since 1923. Thank you for that. And so you use this term, you know, equality. It really is equality for all, both women and men, regardless of sex, right? That's right. I mean, the Equal Rights Amendment, it looks so simple. <laughs> the Equal Rights Amendment says equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. So really it, it would seem to um, require equality under the law across the gender spectrum. And so the, the other kind of confusing thing I think to, to maybe many and, and I'll just add myself to this list, if it's a cherished goal of, of many feminists and, and I'll put myself into that category, why do many still remain cool and and oppose it today? 
What you would think that we would all just line up behind this, right? I mean, I don't know of any feminists who actually oppose the Equal Rights Amendment, but mm, there certainly okay. are those who are who are cool. Cool. Uh, okay. The, yeah, the opposition tends to be um, among conservatives now, uh, which is not the case. I mean, one of the interesting, one of the things that always surprises my students, is that the first political party to support the ERA to to endorse it was the Republican Party in 1940. And they supported the Republican Party supported the ERA in 1940 because it seemed to be pro-business. It was pro-business Republicans who first supported the Equal Rights Amendment because precisely because it would seem to get rid of those protective labor laws for women workers and make women workers more easily exploitable. <laughs> so um, it, the, that the that the opposition is now conservative rather than progressive. You know, it's just a, one of those fascinating twists <laughs> in the whole story. But um, but there but I think many women there are feminists who are cool toward the ERA for there are many different reasons. One reason would be that it's just not clear how the ERA would be interpreted, and so I mean, it looks like such a you know clear such a simple amendment, and yet it's not clear what how the courts would agree to interpret it. It might be that the courts would say, all right, what this means is that the law has to treat uh, people across the gender spectrum exactly the same, right? And if, if that's one possible interpretation, that's probably the most likely uh, interpretation. And if that's the case, if that's the interpretation that flies, then um, some feminists would say, well, you know, that's actually equality, the same treatment, identical treatment, is actually not a winning strategy for producing material equality across the gender spectrum. Because if people start out, if groups of people start out unequal, and then you begin to treat them exactly the same, what you do is you hold in place the inequalities that you started with. I used to have, a, a, I had a colleague ages and ages ago who used to try to explain the importance of affirmative action by reference to a monopoly game. <laughs> and what she would say to her students was, okay, if you started a monopoly game with one player who had $5,000 and three hotels on Park Place, and then from that point on, you gave everybody the same resources. You would never close the gap between the person who started out with $5,000 more than everybody else and, and many hotels on Park Place. You would never close the gap, right? You could improve the position of the people who, um, who are, once everybody got 500 bucks and a couple of houses, you, you know, you, you could improve the position of those other players, but you couldn't close the gap because somebody started out with so much more to begin with that if you just treat everybody the same from then on, you maintain inequalities. So there are those that, that just don't see similar treatment, identical treatment by the law as a, a strategy that can ever achieve gender equality. But it's possible, I mean, there are others, there are people who hope that the interpretation of the Equal Rights Amendment that might fly uh, eventually is one that would require equal impact, 
of laws, not just equal treatment, not, not a law that says men and women or people across the gender spectrum are treated the same, but that the impact of the policy has to be uh, the same. And so that would be a much broader interpretation of the amendment. There's no guarantee that that um, would fly, but if it did, that would be a much more powerful interpretation. And I'm thinking, of, so to give you an example, might be helpful. I'm thinking right this minute of mandatory overtime, mandatory overtime. The Fair Labor Standards Act, which of course was part of the New Deal in the late 1930s, the Fair Labor Standards Act still allows employers to require overtime as a condition of employment. You have to be willing to stick around, you know, after six o'clock, after your shift ends, if the employer needs you to. It's just that the employer has to pay you time and a half for that extra time. Mandatory overtime has different meanings. It has different impacts on people who are caregivers and people who are not caregivers. Because if you are a caregiver who needs, you know, has a child in daycare and the daycare shuts down at 6 p.m., it doesn't matter how much more your employer is going to pay you for staying and working after 6 p.m., you've got to be home. You've got to go get your child out of daycare, right? So, so that mandatory overtime law has a different impact on men and women because men and women are differently situated as, as caregivers. And so it's not impossible that the Equal Rights Amendment might be interpreted to um, as making that mandatory overtime actually unconstitutional, right? So that's a possibility. And then there are other people who have a, even um, broader hopes about the interpretation of the ERA. And those are people who hope that it might be interpreted interpreted to mean that policies actually have to try to create material equality out in society along the gender spectrum. And so it's just not clear what the courts would accept. And I think right this minute, it seems very unlikely that the broadest interpretations would be accepted. And in that situation, the Equal Rights Amendment doesn't promise nearly as much as um, as women need, frankly, to achieve greater equality. Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life, and everything Smithsonian? As part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate guest speakers. Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. We are with Dr. Robin Munsey. Dr. Munsey will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates program coming up. Check out our website and Smithsonian Associates website for more information about Dr. Munsey and our upcoming presentation at Smithsonian Associates. Dr. Munsey, as with all things legal or legislative, it's very nuanced. The the other interesting, you know, along with this idea of interpretation of the ERA, one of the other interesting things to me in my research of this subject is about the the quote unquote deadline, and 
interestingly, Nevada has ratified it in 2017, as you suggest. Illinois, 2018. Virginia, where I live, in 2020. There is this massive wave of uh, new movement, you know, with new states ratifying it. And there's a bill uh, in Congress, I think just last year, to eliminate the original deadline that's pending in the Senate. But what does this quote unquote deadline have to do with passage? Does the deadline even count? <laughs> yeah, that's such a great question. And I think the <laughs> meaning, yes, the meaning of the deadline is really up to Congress and the courts. I mean, some people argue that. Because the deadline was in the preamble to the um, amendment and not in the amendment itself, the deadline doesn't count at all. You know, it's not a part of the amendment. And so some people are arguing right this minute, in fact, since you're absolutely right, the um, 38 states, the three quarters of the states have that, that ratification has been achieved. And some people are arguing that since the deadline wasn't in the body of the amendment, the amendment is already part of the Constitution because it has already satisfied all of the requirements for amendment of the Constitution that you can find in Article 5. Article 5 says basically that two-thirds of the Congress have to approve the, the amendment and then it has to go to the state and three-quarters of the states ratify, then it's part of the Constitution. And since as I said, since the um, the deadline is in the preamble and not in the body of the amendment, some people argue it's already part of the of the um, uh, uh, of the Constitution. But of course, there is the problem of that preamble, and there's also the problem of five states having rescinded their ratifications before 1982. And so, um, Congress is, as you said, right now trying to rescind, some people in Congress are trying to rescind the 82 deadline. And it seems like they have every right to do that. So if the Senate did move on that, that seems like um, it might be, that might be a winner. That, that actually might win in court, but you'd still have to go to court to try to figure out what to do about those rescissions. And so we, I, in Article 5 doesn't say anything about rescissions. So, um, and there've never been rescissions allowed but since these rescissions were made before the three quarters of the states had ratified, it's just not clear what the courts would say about that. So it would still have to go to court, um, even if the Senate, I think, even if the Senate uh, decided to to uh, withdraw the, the deadline. And it doesn't look to me like there's probably a lot of movement in the Senate to do that. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. But, it, but you never know. You just never know. Well, further complicating all of this is a kind of a unique player, one that I certainly needed to learn a little bit about. My audience may want to learn some more about this role, too. This is the role of the U.S. archivist. And <laughs> it seems <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of laughing right along with yeah. you here because you would think that the archivist who is appointed by the president um, – you would think that President Biden could just simply instruct the U.S. archivist to certify the ERA, but in fact, the U.S. archivist has declined to certify the ERA, yet you have attorneys generals from Alabama, Louisiana, South Dakota who had filed lawsuits, dropped their lawsuits, uh, and and so it, it's it's very murky. And so maybe tell us about the role of the archivist and 
where that stands in all of this process. Right. It was kind of an ingenious uh, move for those people who say, oh, for heaven's sake, you know, the all of the requirements of amendment have been satisfied. And so all we need is for the archivist to go ahead and certify and publish the amendment as a part of the Constitution. That's the only step that's that's left. Um, but the, the archivist was um, advised by the Department of Justice, first under the Trump administration and now under the Biden administration, that he did not have the power to do that given the preamble and the problem of the rescissions. So he has not done that and he is in court because uh, of that. But also the, the, the president actually is given no role officially in uh, um, amending the constitution. It's Congress and the states. Those are the those are the the players. Uh, it's not the it's not the executive branch that has power in this case. So the archivist the archivist is in a, in a total bind because of course he was taken to court because he didn't certify. And of course if he did certify he would be taken to court for doing that too. <laughs> there's like no, there's no no uh, winning way out of that. That's for sure. And I think actually the archivist who was taken to court, retired at the end of April. So he's, he's being uh, kept on the job in a certain way by uh, the controversy over the Equal Rights Amendment. I, you know, I want to talk to you about a, a tangential issue, and that's Roe v. Wade, which seems in jeopardy today. Should we be concerned about ongoing support for the ERA in light of what's going on with ERA? And do you think they're related? And what does this current atmosphere say about human rights in general? Oh, so, yeah, I think that as uh, this will just sound trite because it's um, so obvious and people say everybody, I think, is pretty much convinced of this, that uh, we're in a period of profound threat to democracy and to human rights and not just in the U.S., but globally. And so it's a pretty grim moment, a really, really grim moment. Uh, for us. And I think that that means that the likelihood, probably means that the likelihood of immediate acceptance of the ERA as a part of the Constitution is not in our our future, not our immediate future, though you, you, you never can tell. I mean, the majority of Americans do support the ERA and the majority of Americans do support Roe v. Wade. So it's, you know, you just don't know what's going to what's going to happen there. In fact, my students are always just shocked to find out that um, ERA is not already part of the Constitution. This, you know, this is a shock. A lot of people assume that that's there. So, you know, you just don't know what's going to happen. And I have no business predicting the future. That's for sure. But it it is a very grim moment. N nevertheless, I think that. Oh, let me let me address the issue of Roe v. Wade first. Um, it's not clear how the ERA and abortion rights might be connected. It is certainly the case that right now conservatives are claiming that the ERA would usher in an era of protected abortion rights. So they, conservatives are definitely connecting the two. Um, and I think that that's very interesting because it does suggest that they understand that reproductive rights 
are a requirement for gender equality. You know, there's a recognition there of something that I think is true. Um, however, it's not absolutely clear whether the ERA would support abortion rights, would be accepted as, an, as a support. Certainly there are, are um, feminists who would argue in court that, that um, the ERA requires the bodily autonomy of women just as men have bodily autonomy, but it's not absolutely clear that that would fly in the courts. And given the current, um, given the current courts, I'm, I'm not sure that would fly at all. And in fact, in the, in the 1970s, feminists argued that reproductive rights and especially abortion rights and the ERA were not connected. Since the 1990s, there has been more um, talk about the possible connection, the possible support that ERA might actually give to reproductive rights and in particular abortion rights. But it's it's honestly not quite clear um, what the courts would accept there. So the, 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 in fact, it's not, I'm not sure whether the ERA would be much of a help, at least in the immediate future, to, um, to access to abortions. I'm just not sure about that. But I do think that in this, on the larger issue of, you know, where are we in terms of human rights and what does that mean for the Equal Rights Amendment? On that bigger issue, I mean, I would say that the Equal Rights Amendment is important only as a means to other policies and measures that would have a chance of actually creating material material equality along the gender spectrum. So I the Equal Rights Amendment will not, I think, change anything immediately for any women. If it becomes a part of the Constitution, it becomes a tool, it becomes a, a resource that um, women and other people along the gender spectrum could use to try to achieve other measures that would actually create greater equality along a gender spectrum. And those measures I'm thinking of, things like um, equal pay for comparable work, paid family and medical leave. I'm thinking of raising the minimum wage because of course the majority of minimum wage workers are women. And there's almost nothing you could do that would more immediately improve the lives of women and bring them closer to equality with men than, than lifting the minimum wage substantially. You know, so those kinds of oh, you know, federal supports and subsidies for childcare and elder care, those those are the kinds of policies, those are the kinds of measures that actually have the chance of creating material equality between women and men and along the gender spectrum in general. And the ERA might be a valuable tool in achieving those measures, but it will not of itself bring about material equality between women and men. I mean, I think it's, I think probably, and I hope I'll hear from people at the Smithsonian talk about this because they're, you know, I'm not a lawyer and I think there are many people who know a heck of a lot more about this than, than I do for sure. But um, uh, my sense is that there's pretty broad agreement that, that the Supreme Court decisions that have 
insisted on equal treatment by the law since the 1970s, that that the Supreme Court decisions in that de facto ERA that we mentioned earlier, that those would be sustained by the ERA. It would be harder to to overturn those decisions because of the ERA. And that's not nothing. That would be a, a, a that would be a bulwark worth building for sure. But um, beyond that, the ERA is not going to change anything of itself. It becomes a tool in ongoing struggle. And that would be the message I would want to leave, I suppose, an audience with, is that the ERA is not actually an end in itself. It is a measure that gives us another tool in our ongoing struggle for substantive equality along the gender spectrum. That is so well said, so reasonable, so articulate, and so powerful. Well, Dr. Robin Munsey, thank you. I think we will leave it there, too, at least for the time being. We're looking forward to your presentation coming up at Smithsonian Associates. Again, we'll put links in the show notes or where our audience can find out more information about Dr. Robin Munsey and her upcoming presentation at Smithsonian Associates. Thanks so much, Dr. Munsey, for your time today and for shedding light on this subject. It, it is a nuanced one. It, it is complex. I think your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation will do an awful lot in giving us a sense of, of understanding and perhaps some hope about where we can be as an audience. But thank you for your time today. Same to you, Paul. Thank you so much for your time. My thanks to Dr. Robin Muncy. You can find Dr. Robin Muncy at Smithsonian Associates coming soon with more details at our website and Smithsonian Associates. My thanks to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you, my wonderful audience here on the Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast. Please be safe, be well, and let's support gender equality for all. Women's rights and equality are basic human rights for upliftment and equal opportunities for everyone despite their gender. Let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see each other next week right here at notold-better.com. Now, that's the way the old song said it, but I got more to say. I say, I do want your millions, mister, but I think they ought to be divided up among all of us. Yeah.